If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been too long and not often enough, especially with the unusual frequency, ongoing frequency of these mass shootings. Um, many of you were commented on social media about it, and I appreciate it about how glad you were to see me on MSNBC for the first time in quite some time last Friday. The, the, the unfortunate part about it is the reason I was brought on. And obviously a lot of coverage has been about Ukraine and people don't, I guess don't have me on because they don't consider me a Ukraine expert. Uh, I might dispute that, but be that as it may, um, it's good to be back on the air, but it's to be brought back on the air to respond to yet more mass shootings as sort of a bittersweet. I'd, I'd rather not talk about that because I'd rather that not happen. And I'm sure everyone would agree. Our friend today joining us once again, Always a, a, a great guest and ally of the show once again is Igor Volsky of GunsDownAmerica.org. Lord have mercy. What are we going to do? Igor, welcome back, man. How are you? Mark, I am I am a Ukrainian who was born in Ukraine, and I also didn't get invited to talk about the crisis there. Uh, and like you, only appear during, honestly, moments of great tragedy and right. it's staggered now. You know, when I started doing this work, Mark, in 2015, anytime there was a mass shooting, and you'll remember, your audience will remember, you had at least uh, a half day of wall-to-wall -wall coverage, and people would really be, I think, obviously quite, quite shocked. Um, and now, in order for you to see that on cable news, the massacre has to be large enough. Right. So you either have to have usually, you know, more than 10 people or they have to be children or something because they happen so frequently. And to the point where when I saw the news of the Texas shooting last week, the initial reports were two people uh, killed. And so I thought, oh, no one's going to care about this, you know, and so I don't you know, I don't have to move things around in my life. Um, and that's we're just at such a painful moment um, where that's how things are categorized, at least for those of us who work on the issue in terms of, you know, um, how we have to reprioritize things in our lives. But, uh, you know, I'm here, though, because I am optimistic. Uh, and I think change is possible. Uh, and as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, that will come from the leaders uh, who are in power, who have agency, uh, to change the course of this issue because it's not something that is natural and set in stone and we just have to deal with it. 
And what's important about Igor, folks, is what he's going to obviously share with us today, his thoughts about what can be done. And right now, the narrative is that Joe Biden and the Democrats can't do anything. Uh, And not just on this issue, their argument would be they can't do anything about anything because of the filibuster, because of the Senate. And on the surface, that is people are buying that. That makes sense. I know I've bought into it in in many respects. Joe Manchin, uh, uh, the primary culprit and Kirsten Sinema, the primary culprits when it comes to voting rights. But Igor is going to dispute that in terms of this gun violence piece and that there really are no excuses. There are things Joe Biden and Schumer and the Democrats can do, aren't there, Igor? Well, absolutely, Mark. And I have no idea why this president has spent so much time in the last couple of days getting up in front of reporters and telling Americans what he can't do, uh, as opposed to laying out very tangible steps of what he can and should be doing. So, okay, what are those steps? Right now in the White House, there's not a single senior level official whose only job is to work on gun violence prevention. I think that's pathetic for a president who ran on a very comprehensive agenda to reduce gun violence. So number one, he can establish a first ever White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. This office would coordinate a whole of government approach to dealing with this crisis and you would have an actual staff and a leader to drive this issue every single day. That's incredibly important, Mark. And survivors of gun violence have been asking him to establish this office for years. He's refused. That's number one. Number two. Let me just just want to do a little deeper dive into that. Why do do we think he's refused? That to me is just a no brainer. It seems like the the environment everyone is crying out for that i don't even see how his opponents could attack him I mean, what's the worst thing they oh i mean they're, they're only going to say what they've always said they don't want gun violence to stop i mean that's just and that's obvious why why is he loath to do this do you think because there appears to be a staff consensus that the issue, which is currently within housed within the Domestic Policy Council, which, as as viewers and listeners know, is uh, a kind of a policy shop uh, within the White House that deals with a host of domestic policy issues. So there's a National Economic Council that deals with economic issues, Domestic Policy Council that has more issues. And I think there's some concern there, Mark, that taking the issue out of the Domestic Policy Council and putting it within some kind of different apparatus uh, would render the Domestic Policy Council, uh, would weaken that council. Um, And so I think there's this bizarre power struggle uh, about who owns this issue and who drives this issue. And the current staff who work on it are of the opinion, which I think is absolutely wrong, as I think as my list makes clear, is absolutely wrong, that they are doing everything within their power that there's nothing more anybody else could do. And so they've really resisted. And and just to be clear, the Domestic Policy Council, I guess, feels some ownership because that was the place where the uh, the decision to grant the money to um, uh, violence prevention community organizations took place. So I guess they feel like we did that this should stay within our 
purview. I'm, I'm, that's yeah. They coordinated that effort along with DOJ and HHS. As you know, that money, those buckets of money, came out of different agencies. And you know, and that you bring that up. That's so important. And that's to their credit, right? I don't. Sometimes I come across as overly critical. I am not suggesting that the Domestic Policy Council hasn't taken key initial steps to address this issue. They have. Uh, and the community funding that you reference, which is designed uh, to go to organizations on the community level that have shown that by identifying the small number of individuals who are responsible for most of the gun violence in a given community, that and working with those individuals and offering them different choices and changing the norms of behavior in that community, they could bring homicides down using trusted messengers and other techniques and hospital-based efforts. That, that's all a very important work. And I, again, to underscore, I think is historic, frankly, um, for this administration to be pursuing it and certainly uh, working on it far more uh, fervently, I would say, than even President Obama had. Um, particularly during his first term. So uh, they've done some good work, but as the crises of the last couple of weeks remind us, and as this everyday uh, gun violence numbers, it continues to increase. It, I think, recalls the fact that it's simply not enough, and they need a larger structure and more staff uh, and more expertise than they currently have. Um, as I was saying to Igor, that's some pretty to me, helpful political advice for a White House that is besieged by headlines saying it's adrift. Uh, that would be a particular focus that is goes beyond um, the thoughts and prayers, the appearances at these um, memorials, which is fine. All that should happen. But that would would I mean, it would be something. Uh, and and yeah, just just something needs to happen. OK, so I, I just wanted to to park on that point. So, cause it still seems really unfathomable. They won't even consider that. Um, it, it, several steps here, new executive orders. So there, you, you would also argue there's some things that he can do with the stroke of his pen. There certainly are. And, you know, he said when he was, I believe leaving, leaving Buffalo after that visit, that there's not more he could do. Uh, he has since walked that back, and there's some indication in the reporting that maybe they are considering uh, new executive actions. Um, you know, to me, this is a no-brainer. He received during the transition, uh, Mark, like a like a 200-page document that included not only all the executive actions that his administration should be taking, but also steps uh, they could be pursuing both with and without um, congressional support. They've achieved a small fraction of that. Um, in fact, just this past February, um, a group of uh, gun violence prevention organizations sent very specific executive actions that he could do that he has not yet done. Um, and the White House just simply hasn't engaged. The Domestic Policy Council simply hasn't engaged, either because it's not a priority or they're working on other issues, um, which again, to me, underscores the need for uh, a full-time house uh, for this issue. And Mark, this is everything from um, really shaping up 
some of the definitions we use uh, when we talk about gun violence. As you know, mass shooting is defined in all kinds of ways, uh, ensuring that we have the data accurate because from the data follows good policy, right? If you know, if you can truly define the problem um, to things that are, that are more substantial, right? There are steps you could take. Uh, to strengthen the national background check system uh, that are definitional and may sound small, but have an outsized impact. Because as you know, on this issue, even a small tweak, even an incremental step can save lives. So why not do it? Um, And so, you know, I'm hopeful with this new reporting uh, that they will really kind of get that in gear and start moving on it. Certainly, I think if I'm look a voter and I am reminded yet again that I can get killed going to the grocery store or my kids may not come back to school, right? That's what these shootings serve as. That's why they garner so much attention because we can recall that, oh my God, we're really not safe. And of course, you know, as we've been saying, there are so many Americans and communities across the country where that's an everyday anxiety, right? Because they have high rates of, of, of retaliatory gun violence and cyclical gun violence in their communities. And so for the president to get up there and to say, oh, there's nothing I could do. It's all really hard. You know, it's the Republicans. To me, that's such a defeatist message. Why not lay out um, a series of executive orders. Yes, even if they're small, A, they will have an impact, and B, you're sending a message to the public that you're actually going to fight for what you promised them and for what you believed, or for what for what they why they voted for you, right? To to address this issue, um, and and so on that piece, Mark, on, on the executive action piece, I, I think maybe we'll see some action, but it's slow moving because you don't have enough staff to drive it, which is why I need the office. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, that would that would make a difference. Um, you also argue for him to use his experience uh, as someone who bragged and has bragged about his experience as a senator and his ability to bring both sides together. Yeah. I mean, look, he told us, uh, particularly during the primary, that what distinguished him from all of the other opponents who were running against him in 2020 was the fact that he had these 30 years of experience of bringing Democrats and Republicans together to get hard things done. That's practically a quote uh, that he would use on the campaign trail. And so given those tools um, and that skill set that he told us he had, I am confused why he's outsourced this current negotiation that, as you know, is going on between Senators Murphy and Cornyn on like a very small piece that would encourage states to adopt these emergency risk protection order laws, which we can get into. Um, why he's outsourced uh, that work to such an important on such an important matter that so many Americans care about, and I know it's, this issue is important to him. So why isn't he rolling up his sleeves? Because look, I think that will do two things. One, I actually think that will get us closer to a deal, and I'll say why in a second. And number two, I think it sends a clear message, a clear political message to voters across the country that this president will fight. Right now, he looks like a bystander. And I don't know voters who want to vote for a bystander. I think voters want to vote for a fighter. And even if you can't get something across the finish line, you turn around and you tell voters, I fought for you. We almost got there. 
but I need you to turn out in November and vote on this issue to help me get the votes we need to start building safer communities in this country. That's just a much more compelling message to voters than blame Mitch McConnell, blame Marco Rubio, blame maybe even Joe Manchin, right? You got to show them people are so uh, distrustful of government. Uh, they don't believe what you tell them if you're a politician. You got to actually show them you're willing to engage in this stuff. And the fact that they don't see that is beyond me. You know, the other way to think about this, Mark, for me is we have on this issue, as you know, the viewers and listeners know, 90%, the entire country supports background checks and a whole slew of other policy solutions to reduce gun violence that we know work. If the administration believes that this president is incapable of channeling that 90% support into political pressure on Republicans to push them to make a deal, then what does that say about what their, what their capabilities are, right? Almost everybody and their mother supports background checks. This administration argues, and they have to reporters, that if the president were to, and this is what I suggest, crisscross the country and transform that popular support into actual political pressure in key states in order to make Republicans feel who, yes, I agree, are the obstacle to this, obviously, in the Senate, that they at least have to try to make a deal. Their argument is doing that, putting pressure on Republicans with their own voters, makes Republicans less likely to feel compelled to make a deal. That is insane. That is the kind of three, and you, Mark, you've been, you've been doing this for so long. You know this is the kind of three-dimensional chess that Democrats play all the time because they are have their heads up somewhere where nobody else has them, number one. And number two, are constantly afraid of their shadows on, on this issue and on a whole host of other issues. And it drives me up a wall. The fact that people buy this argument, that if the president got involved, he would politicize the issue and Republicans would, would, would feel less likely to, you know, to make a deal is such garbage to me. It's as if, it's as if they believe that if the president keeps quiet, then we can trick Republicans into believing that making a deal won't be a political victory for him. Like it's absurd. It's absurd to me, which is why number three, travel the country, make the case. <laughs> and and they listen to what Republicans, see Republicans are saying that we don't want you out here doing anything, Joe, if you want us to do something. And Joe and the Democrats say, okay, okay, whatever you say, <laughs> that doesn't make any any sense at all. And I think that they think that the the public, because let's face it, they're all focused on the midterms. And I think they believe the public will just blame the Republicans for what happens. And if Democrats can win the midterms, then something can be done. And the can just keeps getting kicked down one road and next road and next road. So you're right. It, it is it is very, very um, uh, uh, frustrating. Here's another no brainer. Obama was good at these mm -hmm. hosting a White House. Well, he was good at holding summits, even not on, on this subject, but Obama was host a White House gun violence prevention summit. How hard can that be? They have been promising advocates, senators that they would do this for years, for literal years. Right. So this would accomplish two things. One, 
it would begin a conversation um, about, you know, solutions to this issue at the presidential level. Um, number two, it would, again, signal to the country that this is a real presidential priority. Again, we do this with other issues. I think an issue that is so intertwined with our safety, with our lives, deserves no less priority um, and no less commitment. And again, the, the, the thing, Mark, like this administration doesn't want to be caught doing anything on this issue. So think about this. They don't want voters to see them doing anything because they are so afraid that if that's what voters see, it will activate the other side and the other side will come out in larger numbers in the midterms and vote for, uh, you know, Republican conservative candidates. If you believe that your message and your political muscle is so weak that you have to hide and duck from key issues not to activate the other side, you have a bigger problem. You are operating from a place of incredible weakness. And my, my the under underpinning of everything I'm saying is you have to build power on this issue and you have to do it now. And I'm not suggesting, Mark, that if the president did all of these things that I'm that I'm laying out, that we will somehow magically overcome the systemic barriers between before us to 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 make a deal. Right, the filibuster, the fact that we don't have sixty votes. I'm not suggesting those things will magically dissipate. What I'm arguing is that we can start building muscle memory for acting on this issue. We could get voters to understand and to get into a headspace that isn't, oh, this will keep on happening. Government is ineffective. There's nothing they can do, which is where most voters are. Just look at the polls into a place of like, oh, my God, when a mass shooting happens or when gun violence spikes, our leaders who we voted for will actually fight for us. And you build on that election cycle over election cycle. And that, Mark, in my opinion, is what's going to get us closer to 60 votes or closer to 50 votes who want to get rid of the filibuster, not this passive lead from behind bystander approach that, again, sorry to rant about this, but drives me up every wall, every wall I see. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Well, you, you're right. You, you do have a bigger problem, mm -hmm. uh, what that says, because the other um, thing we're hearing, that's the same argument. Just, just to change subjects briefly, just show you the, the analogy. Mm -hmm. That's why they don't want to prosecute Trump. Mm -hmm. That's why they're saying to the New York DA, don't prosecute. They're saying if you prosecute Trump, even though you have all the evidence to indict, it will mobilize their base. So, again, to make decisions when it comes to a very principled, moral, ethical life and death issue based upon a fear of mobilizing someone else's something is wrong with that 
uh, that <laughs> something is terrible. Well, it exposes wrong. a rot, right? It exposes yeah. an underpinning rot in how progressive candidates, Democratic candidates uh, perceive their power and their ability. Um, and again, I, I would rather fail trying than fail sitting on my hands. Because if I sit on my hands, I definitely fail. At least if I'm trying, there's a slightly higher chance. And the other thing, Mark, you know, I've been making this point is that, you know, here in DC, and, and I'm sure like just throughout um, folks who work in politics and folks in America, there's like, there's, and it's in our culture, I think, there's this like, what I've started calling like sexy cynicism that people feel that being cynical about the prospect for change kind of like makes them more sophisticated, makes them, uh, they come across as better informed. Um, you know, the phrase of like, oh, well that tracks, right? Like whatever happens, you're like, oh, of course that's gonna, that's gonna happen. And I am just of the opinion that for a country that went through a shocking 2016 election, that went through COVID, which shocked everybody, that went through a Trump administration where nobody could have predicted anything, maybe we should just humble up a little bit and get rid of this like cultural cynicism that we think that we know exactly how things are going to go and recognize, I mean, I'm sure there's some like larger religious construct to this that I just don't know about, maybe you can help with, and recognize that like the world is a random place and there are factors that are outside of our control and we can't always predict, particularly in politics or things. I mean, look at what's happening in New York with all the damn districts where you have all these members running against each other. They could have never predicted that, right? So and this is particularly true on this issue. Everybody says to me, Igor, he, Biden can do whatever he wants. He's not going to get 60 votes. He won't be able to break the filibuster. Stop attacking him. And I say, that may be true, but shouldn't we at least try? Shouldn't we? Why are, why are we pretending like we are God that see into these prophetic beings that see into the future? It's not like that in the real world. Well, well, the spiritual aspect of it really is the, the in, un, inability and unwillingness to do anything about the death of all of the, the deaths of all of these people mm -hmm. and, and the, the culture of, of numbness. Um, and, and, and unfortunately I think that's what enables probably even some of the politicians in action mm -hmm. because, you know, we're just going on with our lives as if, yeah, this happens. This is just, this is just what happens in America. And to me, that is that is the real spiritual rot um, that we can't protect. A, a great mentor of, of many of us, Dr. John Henry Clark, once said that, you know, you judge a nation by how it cares was very young and it's very old. And that did not come more to light than elders being killed in Buffalo. And then just days later, children being killed mm -hmm. in Texas. And if that does not awaken us or, or do something to us. I don't know. I don't know what, what, what will, um, lastly, and you kind of alluded to this just in terms of the list, um, the, the president and vice president, you argue should travel to impacted communities and, and build support for action. Um, again, all of these things you're recommending, 
you know, even frankly, and I know you, you're, you're not politically partisan in this, so to speak. But to me, these are still things that would help them in a politically partisan fashion better than this. Well, let's just hold still. Let's not do anything to mobilize the other side. Um, there has to be some type of, of moral leadership. And it's not religious. It's not even super moral to say, hey, let's stop having people get killed. Mm-hmm. That's not too much to to ask, to mm-hmm. argue for. I just don't see the controversy, Igor. No, I don't see it too. And you know, yesterday the New Zealand Prime Minister uh, was at the White House, uh, and I'm sure spoke to the president privately and in her public remarks talked about how a, I mean, yes, New Zealand culture towards gun ownership very different than American culture. Let's just rec- let's just put that on the table. I'm not suggesting there's a a strong you know parallel here. Just the uh, cultures are different, the histories are different, uh, etc. But what I am saying is, New Zealand, Australia, Canada now are proving that you can change the cycle of these tragedies, right? That it doesn't have to constantly happen, and for us to to, to as a nation to be in this kind of national trauma, and I think. For to, breaking out of it starts with the leaders who promised us they would fight to actually fight. That's the that's how we start, right? I mean, yes. I uh, let's just yes. We can go from the from the bottom up, right? We can, which is part of why we're talking, right? Because I'm trying to get people to see that directly pushing the president, creating a public demand for change from him, we'll get him to move, right? We'll make it easier for him to make the argument of Americans across the country want me to do X, Y, Z. I have listened to their calls and I am moving forward, right? That's the kind of argument he needs to make, but he needs all of us to demand change in this regard. And I've just been so frustrated, Mark, and this is a separate conversation, but I've been so frustrated to see so many of my partners in the gun violence prevention movement, particularly some of our larger organizations, abdicate any effort to push the president. Because when there's no political demand for elected officials to act, they will not. And it is our responsibility as advocates to make it e- to lubricate the process, to make it easier for them to fight and move in the right direction. So in many ways, I don't, I, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm just saying, you know, it all starts and ends with Biden. It's really up to us to push him to get him there because we're still in a democracy last time I checked, or at least for the time being. So um, that's, I think, when if the people lead, the leaders will follow. Yes. That's really the way it's, it's supposed to work. Um, No, you're right. And, and that abdication, I I like, uh, uh, and folks, be sure to follow uh, Igor on Twitter uh, as well. uh, Igor Volsky. Uh, you re- you talk about it as you describe it as Igor leading from behind. And that is never an answer in a situation like this. And the notion that, well, we don't want to mobilize the other side, but apathy also begets apathy. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, the, to me, the, the, the greater, um, tragedy and the greater malady is 
the numbness. And I'm talking to someone who, from the perspective of an African-American, for, for, for decades now, there has been a numbness toward gun violence on our own part in our own community, just as an ex- accepted way of life. And I said, yeah, I, I wrote an article after the Aurora shooting mm. where I said, I'm going to tell everybody something. You, you know, you can, as much as you project the terminology, the racist terminology, black on black violence, pretty soon, the more this happens in the white community, you're going to have the same, you're going to feel a sense of helplessness and numbness. We went to Buffalo last week. Just people sit out and said, we're numb. We don't know what to do. We don't, it's just, it's, it just feels like people are resigned to this reality. And to me, that is the, to use your term, the, the, the greater rot the greater mm-hmm. evidence that of, of a culture and a society literally crumbling, mm-hmm. not folks waiting around trying to see what politicians are going to do or trying to strategize not to mobilize another politician's base. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's the thing that is, that is most scary about all this. And I want everybody to hear very carefully what Igor says that some of our organizations have even abdicated because People have bought into this. We, we have to do everything we can not to mobilize the other side so that everything centers around not getting Republicans back in power, not getting Trump. So Trump back in power. But it's it's unfortunate that people have bought into the notion that preventing that means silence. Versus outspokenness, fear, right? Fear of that outspokenness, yeah. fear of outspoken, you know, you know and. You know, some things, some sayings that it will outlive us all. There comes a time when silence is betrayal at, at, at some point along the way. Look, look don't get me started. You know, and maybe you need to do this. Maybe you need to do your, do your own Igor Volsky sort of letter from the Birmingham jail. See, because back then, what was happening? The preachers were saying, Dr. King, shh, be, be cool. You don't want to upset the apple cart too much. We agree with you, but it's a little, little too loud and... You know, we have to do this in the most moderate, soft-spoken way. I mean, he was saying, y'all, y'all crazy. No. Mm-hmm. That's, so, I mean, I think that that's really where we are on this piece. And and maybe, maybe that's uh, something that uh, Igor Volsky needs to do. I feel that Igor Volsky is called to do. I'm calling Igor Volsky. I don't know how <laughs> you want to interpret. But, <laughs> but uh, and I know you've been after me about, co-authoring some stuff with you. So if you want to do that, we can do that too. Cause I think that that, that needs to happen. We need to have our own, you know, letter from the Birmingham jail, so to speak, letter from the front line, letter yeah. from, yeah. Uh, uh, from the battlefield, uh, from the carnage that, that we are too effing polite. Gun violence is not polite. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at the end of the day, you know, we have to ask ourselves, we have choice. You know, would you would you would you rather yourself or your loved one perish from COVID or from what, what's been happening with these guns? COVID is merciful now. Overnight, COVID became mer- a merciful death compared to all of this. But but anyway, it, it, there's so much. You, you mentioned something. I want, I want to do this and then I'm, I won't keep you much longer. The, the you mentioned uh, the processes going on in the Senate now, the negotiation, all of that. Um, it, 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 does that does that have any? Is that going to make a difference? Do you think are they doing anything that is really going to bring about a difference? Well, look, uh, there's several ways to think about this. One is to say that 
uh, Congress making tangible progress on this issue, even if it's small, is significant, right? And I, I would agree that even it appears that the current negotiations um, are focusing on encouraging states to adopt laws uh, that would allow um, uh, uh, family members, employers, friends to petition a court uh, and say to that court, uh, my loved one uh, is troubled uh, for X, Y, Z reason, right? Document it. Um, and I believe uh, they should not have access to a firearm. Uh, and if a judge approves that petition to the court, those firearms are then removed from that individual's home. Um, and what we've seen in the states that have those kinds of laws is that they have prevented uh, not only obviously mass tragedies, but also self-harm. Um, and it's built on this theory of a domestic uh, violence restraining order that we've had in this country for a very long time, right? If you can go into a court and you have, uh, you have to meet a certain evidence threshold to say, um, my partner uh, has a history of this kind of abuse, I need you, judge, to keep them away from me, right? To issue an order saying that if they come within a certain uh, distance of me, right, there will be consequences. Those have been so. So th that's that's when you hear a lot about red flag laws or emergency risk protection orders, as they're also called. It's the same thing, just two different names. That's what folks talk about, and there's some support from Republicans to adopt these kinds of measures. The deal that Senators Murphy and Cornyn appear to be hashing out would simply encourage states that don't have these kinds of measures to adopt them. Now, is, will that have a tremendous impact on our nation's gun violence crisis? No. Is it moving us in the right direction? Yes, right? So that is one way um, to think about it. The other is to say that maybe if we're starting in this super compromised place, right, of, of we're not even talking about really background checks, we're talking about several steps down, um, maybe that's the wrong approach to go into a negotiation and saying, you know, can you agree, you know, I, so, so, so Democrats are here, and Republicans are here. And it's like, you're, this doesn't make sense. I'll stop. I don't know what I'm doing here. But you know what I mean, right? It, Democrats going in, uh, and kind of giving everything up immediately. And the opening gambit is, I'll meet you almost exactly where you are, right? Like, I don't know how much sense that makes strategically. Um, so it's, that's a challenge, right? I mean, I think, a deal is a move in the right direction, but I also don't want it to create a dynamic where lawmakers are like, and we're done, right? Um, yeah. Because yeah. you need so much, so many more uh, reforms to, to really make progress. And, and the latest reporting, at least that I saw last night, was that they had a fine Zoom call. So that should give you a sense of, you know, how that's going. Yeah, yeah. We'd be remiss, though, before we go. And folks, again, we invite you to go to gunsdownamerica.org. Keep up with everything that's going on there. Get involved. Um, Ukraine, your thoughts about what's going on. I can imagine what they are, but we haven't talked to you. So is this you bringing me on as a Ukrainian to finally speak about <laughs> the first time in my career about the crisis? Uh 
You know, Mark, I have to tell you, I'll just say this. You know, I left Kiev. We left Kiev when I was five years old and we moved to Israel, lived there for two years and then came to New Jersey when I was seven. And I've been in America uh, for close to 30 years. And, uh, you know, uh, this happens in many immigrant families. It was true in ours that the decision to leave the Soviet Union, uh, which wasn't particularly easy, um, and was one that was really rooted in the challenges of living in a country that was so deeply entrenched in anti-Semitism um, and reflected you know, the challenges that my family had in terms of educational adv- advancement, employment advancement. You know, I, at a very young age, I, I used to tell the story publicly when I was on my book tour a lot, uh, you know, confronted anti-Semitism when I was four or five years old when I was in the hospital, kids making fun of my name. I had a different last name that was that was Jewish. We changed it to Volsky to make me seem less Jewish so I could be, you know, have more ability to live in Soviet society. Um, you know, so my mom uh, made the choice for, for us to leave. And I never really thought a lot about what my life would be like uh, had we not. Uh, And when the war started, Mark, uh, on, I believe, February 24th, it really, truly hit me really hard, uh, that contrast between what my life would have been had we stayed and what it is today, right? Just complete night and day. And what really stuck out to me, that if I was still living in Ukraine, in Kiev, I would be telling people to pick up their guns and fight the Russians, as opposed to now where I'm asking Americans to put their guns down. Um, And that almost like shook me, you know, in a very real emotional and and personal way. Um, And so, you know, I think obviously of my former countrymen and women. um, And I honestly, Mark, thank uh, uh, all of the uh, uh, spirits and, and, uh, uh, and gods uh, and good forces in this world that my mother made the brave decision uh, to leave the only country she's known, the only language she's spoken, um, to first move to Israel and, and then to America. It takes an incredible, as so many immigrants do and know, every single day, it takes an incredible amount of courage to upend your life and start entirely anew. Um, and frankly, I think part of what drives me to do the work I do um, is that kind of pedigree. Uh, and looking back at that history and thinking, my goodness, if my mom could do what she did not once, but twice, switch countries, cultures, languages, um, then I believe I have the inner strength to uh, uh, deal with change and you know overcome adversity and fight for for what I believe in. Yeah, and that's that's quite a existential juxtaposition. That way you put that <laughs> asking Americans, fighting for Americans to put their guns down while supporting the Ukrainians in picking up their guns and fighting the Russians. That's, that's, that's deep. That's deep. Folks, uh, follow him on Twitter at Igor Volsky. Follow Guns Down America on Twitter and go to gunsdownamerica.org. Much more work to be done. Uh, Igor raising some very important questions. And unlike 
others uh, challenging uh, the Democrats who, you know, on paper, at least are in power um, and um, can do something. Uh, and, and as I've been saying thematically these past few months, if 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 the party elected to power can do anything, then we really don't have a, a functioning democracy anymore. We really do not have. And if we don't have a functioning democracy and any type of governability going on, um, then there's going to continue to be um, bedlam mm-hmm. and violence and mass shootings. So somebody has to do something. Igor is trying and we support him. But we need all of you. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. We need all of you to push the president, the senator, major, Senate majority leader to do their jobs. That's where it starts. Indeed. Thanks, Igor. Thank you, Mark.